So, and I assume Mr. Spurlock is probably flying. Uh, Spurlock yeah. Sr.? Okay, cool. So, so I got a text last night from Pete. He was like, hey man, do you have a class in the back of your pocket? So I was like, well, sure. I was like, what do you want me to teach? He's like, uh, tomorrow night. I'm like, oh, cool. Thanks for the heads up. And he's like, well, the guy I wanted to teach fell through, so I called you. And I was like, okay, well, thanks a lot, man. No, I was playing. You, you didn't say that. But um, I'm basically, the cool thing is there's like four or five other men that I know of that I've already said, like, well, you know, I, I got your back in case you don't want to teach or in case something comes up, which is amazing that uh, so many of us have either a passion, an interest, or, or, or something that we're willing to share and we've, because we've previously invested the time and put the effort into learning about and studying that passion and interest. So, all that uh, said, let's go ahead and bless God. May it be your will, Adonai, my God, that a mishap not come about through us, that we not stu- that we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us, and that, uh, and may we not say regarding someone, sorry, regarding something which is tame that it is tahor, and regarding something which is tahor that it is tame, and may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law and rejoice over over them, or, and, and and that we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Good evening, gentlemen. So this is going to be very low-key. I have just a couple notes. The topic tonight, um, I I, I wanted to learn more with you guys, to to learn with you some some things about Hillel the Elder, who's, who's mentioned a lot in the Talmud who is, a, uh, a, a, in many ways, a founding father of the development of Judaism during the Second Temple period uh, uh, history. And I know that everyone in the Messianic movement is familiar with Hillel to a certain extent, because everyone knows a few things about him, primarily this. They know that he existed before Yeshua and had a lot to say about uh, potential converts. They know that a lot of what Yeshua said halakhically lined up, or what perhaps it's more proper to say a lot about what Hillel said halakhically lined up with what Yeshua said. Uh, and they, they kind of work in junction with, with most of the points. And then thirdly, they also know that there's this big juxtaposition between the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. And that there's this, throughout, throughout the ages, even, even in today, and, and other works of Jewish literature, these, these two different people and their uh, eventual um, schools of thought are always... Um, juxtaposed as one is the antithesis of the other to a certain extent. But I wanted to go a little bit deeper and, t- and focus on Hillel and say why exactly did he interpret things the way he did? Why is it that his method of deriving things, I think Taylor or those that have more theological education than I do, we call that the, uh, the her- hermeneutics of, of their, their methods of, of uh, in- interpreting scripture. So I, I wanted to give kind of a just a, a, a general background of him, his his uh, his persona, his his education, and then kind of talk about the um, his uh, unique teachings that that influenced his uh, philosophy to a certain extent. So and the cool thing is a lot of us in the Messianic movement, whatever you want to call it, we 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 know about Hillel, but only from a secondhand account because we've listened to a teaching about him or we listened to a Messianic teacher about him that, that kind of told us about Hillel, but I wanted to go directly to the source. Hillel is mentioned in many places, but ultimately and primarily in, 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 different, ver- in different areas of the Talmud. So I have three different tractates here, and I'm just going to read to you uh, it's kind of the, the, 
the English translation of the, the, the Aramaic, and hopefully we can kind of uh, discuss and, like I said, learn together, because I'm in, in no way am I qualified, really, to give a whole dissertation on the history of Hillel and, and, and the person he is. Um, and I'll, I'll use that marker board towards the end. But So let's, let's begin with um, the story of Hillel and kind of the humble beginnings that, that from, from which he comes. This is Tractate Yoma, which spends most of its ink on, on the pages talking about the protocol of the high priest on Yom Kippur. In fact, Yoma is just the, the Aramaic word for Yom, for day. It's talking about the day, that, that is the day of, of, of coverings of Yom Kippur. So this is, believe it or not, the first chronological um, story we have of, of, of Hillel. This is the first time he's mentioned before he was actually famous. And it's a really interesting story, so bear with me as, as, as I read you this. It says, this is Yoma 35b. And for those that have read it, you, 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 you act, this may be a little reminiscent of previous uh, Dafiomi courses. So it says that, a, uh, that the Talmud describes Hillel's situation in his early days. They used to say about Hillel the Elder that each and every day he would perform work and earn a, a, a particular amount of currency, which is referred to as a terapik, which is half of a dinar. In other words, he was a blue-collar guy making dirt. Very, 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 very little money. Um, in fact, um, he, would, he was basically in, in poverty, working daily wages, making not a lot of money. And it says that he would earn half or sorry, half of what he would earn, he would give to the guard of the study hall, the, the, Beit, the Beit Midrash. And the other half was for his livelihood um, and, and the livelihood of his household. So basically half of it he, he would give uh, as, a, as a daily tuition fee, basically almost like going to a movie theater back in, back in the day as opposed, to, as opposed to a movie. You're going to go watch some of the most and, and, and participate with the most educated Torah scholars in the land and, and half, you know, basically they're asking a quarter of a dinar, which is not a lot of money unless you're only making half a dinar to begin with. So, and, and it's, we, we, we learn a lot of interesting details from the story. So anyways, half of his money he'd get for groceries, pay his bills, and the other half of it he would make a large sacrifice on, on his ha on, on, for his sake and on behalf of his family just so he could go and listen to words of Torah. And then it says um, that... One time he could not find means to earn any money on one particular day, and the guard of the Beit Midrash did not allow him to enter. Therefore he climbed up to the roof and suspended himself and sat at the edge of the skylight in order to hear the words of the living God. And from the mouth of the two pairs, the, the two teachers at that time, who were Shemaiah and Atvilon. Um, and they said that this particular day was an Erev Shabbat, and that it, that it was in the winter time, in the winter season, and that snow descended upon Hillel from the heavens when he sat on the, uh, by the skylight. So it's freezing cold. Ash just, just happened uh, just a few months ago, this past winter in, uh, in Jerusalem. It was like, what, three feet of snow. It's kind of this, this, this freak thing. And this is exactly what happens to Hillel. He's, he's, he's broke. The, the guard says, I'm sorry, not this time. There's, there's, there's this overhead fee you have to pay. It's not that much, but, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. So Hillel, what, what does he do? He scales to, to, to the top of this building. And uh, imagine if you've if ever been to Israel, just a, kind of this flat roof with a, a circle in the middle so that skylight can come into this court where, where all these t Torah teachers are. And that's where he's sitting. And it's Arab Shabbos, so it's like the most stressful time in, in, in a uh, Jewish 
community because there's so much going on. Hustle and bustle. Hey, Brock. So, so, so he's sitting up there just so he can, from afar, listen to the words of Torah. And all of a sudden, this freak storm happens. And it says that all throughout the night, snow descended upon Hillel from the heavens. And when day broke, Shemaiah and Atavilon, the, the two teachers, uh, noticed that it, it became dark in the room. And Shemaiah said to Atavilon, Atavilon, my brother, Every day the building is illuminated, but tonight it is dark. I'm sorry, but today it is dark. Perhaps it is a cloudy day. But then they raised their eyes and saw a man's figure in the skylight, and they ascended to the roof and found snow on Hillel, about three amot high. And they, uh, they extracted him, washed him with warm water, uh, anointed him with oil, and sat him opposite the fire. They fed him, and then they said, for, for this one, for, that is, for this person, Hillel, it is appropriate to desecrate the Shabbat. From here we see that Hillel totally, uh, t- totally sacrificed himself for Torah study and thus serves as a, as a pinnacle and as, uh, and as a paramount figure and reproach for all paupers in, in, in the society at that time. So weird story. That is the first uh, chronological story we have of Hillel. This is, this is, so basically this is what we can learn. He's not a very educated man. He's a, you know, comes from very humble backgrounds. Um, in fact, he's, he's a full-fledged adult before he's actually taken under the wings of, of uh, Shmaya and, and, and Atfilon as, as under their tutelage. And he eventually becomes a, a substitute for them along with Shammai, his, his basically his uh, professional uh, uh, opponent. Uh, there's some other things we can learn about this. Um, so, he's, Hillel, from afar, he's introduced as a man who's basically far removed from the elite of Jewish society, Jewish education. In other words, he's like the guy whose, whose nose is pressed up against the glass of Judaism. And, and he does everything he can to get on the other side. Um, and perhaps that explains some of his conduct with potential converts later on in his life. The people that are still far removed from Judaism and are trying, trying to break that barrier... He has a lot more compassion on them than his uh, than his compatriots his compatriots did at the time, based on his uh, his background. I found that, found that very interesting. Uh, some other things about the story that I had initial questions on. Uh, nowhere else is there a record of a yeshiva holding sessions on an erev Shabbos and then throughout the night until Shabbos morning, because every other record we have, and even in, in current tradition, you know, if if you're in a yeshiva program. You're, you're let out early on a Friday, so you're with the family. Like I said, it's hustle and bustle. You're getting ready for the day of rest. And then obviously Saturday, uh, that, that, that Friday night, you're with your family. Here, this, this, uh, this particular Beit Midrash is going through the night, even until Saturday morning. And that's when they notice, oh, it's still dark in here. I wonder why. Oh, there's a man up in the skylight. So it's the, the first time we ever see a, a, a record of a yeshiva on steroids going all the way th- through the weekend. Also, this is the first time we ever hear of a Beit Midrash collecting ch- um, or charging daily payment in order as, as, as a tuition fee. And there's a couple of th- theories why perhaps this community had, you know, the, the, the Beit Midrash was growing, they needed, they were expanding it, maybe they had other um, amenities like refreshments, or perhaps they had more than one scroll. Uh, if, if you think about it, the whole reason of a Beit Midrash is because the community maybe had one, two, maybe three scrolls. I was, I was actually talking to my brother-in-law about that last night. In order to be a kind of a sage, a hacham, one, one, th- uh, one kind of prerequisite is your memory had to be phenomenal because you didn't have all the, all the resources av- available to, uh, that we have today with 
you know, choose, choose your translation, you probably have four or five of them on your shelf. Back then, maybe the entire community had four or five, if that. And, and to maintain those scrolls, to properly, uh, you know, uh, uh, keep those scrolls stored in, in, a, in a kosher manner and in a respectful manner costs money. And perhaps it was that little bit amount in this particular community that, that would keep that Beit Midrash, basically an institution, that would keep it going. So I found it pretty interesting. Uh, lastly, this is, this is the most interesting, the, the last statement from Shmaya and Inaculon, where it says, um, they, they made a statement, for this one person it is appropriate to desecrate the Shabbat. Uh, this is, like I said, prior to the what would eventually um, culminate into modern Jewish idea and practice, and the idea, and at this time there was still a lot of um, and, uh, uh, vagueness on exactly what you can violate on the Shabbat. And interesting story, not only a few hundred years before this happened, you have uh, the story of Hanukkah, right? And the the Hashmonaim, the the Maccabean uh, fighters, had a particular sect um, in, in in their group called the Hasidim, who would not fight on Shabbat. And there's this famous story where they were, they were being attacked by, by the Greeks on, on mid-Friday, and the Hasidim were fighting up until sunset where they dropped their weapons down, refused to fight, thus desecrate the Shabbat, and were obviously mowed down by the Syrian Greeks. And one of the sons of uh, Matisyahu, whose name is Yonatan, actually, had basically made a decree right then and there. It says, if, if you're going to fight, we cannot be like the Hasidim, because if that's the case, then there, there will be no more resistance in a certain amount of time. So we are going to desecrate the, the Shabbat, in this case, for the greater cause of saving our lives, and eventually the goal of saving the nation of Israel. And that was only a few hundred years before, maybe maybe a, um, 150, uh, in, in, in my estimate, uh, before this event happened. So there's still a little bit of debate and a, a little bit of, I don't really know what, what, what the rules are to type of element going on at this time of how, how far can we go when it comes to breaking the Shabbat. And it's interesting because Hillel and Shammai would eventually kind of have a lot to say on that topic as far as healing, for example, is, 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 a, uh, is, is a commandment worth breaking or um, obviously life trumping Shabbat. There, there, was, there were definitely ideas um, but it was still unknown. And in fact, um, I'm glad that the, that the debate and the discussion didn't end here, because basically Atvalon and Shemaya basically said that you have to be as righteous and as pious as Hillel the Elder in order to, to, be, uh, in order to have a, the desecration of Shabbat valid to save your life. Which is, I'm glad they were much more lenient on that mm -hmm. point. Go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to say, it's interesting that you bring up the fact that Hillel and Shemaya would have this this ongoing debate on whether or not it should, it's right to heal on the Sabbath because we see that exact same thing with the Master. And he even asked the Pharisees, you know, if a, if a sheep or a lamb falls into a pit on the Sabbath, yeah. won't any of you take hold of it and pull it out? Exactly. How much more is a man than a sheep? Exactly. That's a good point. So that is the first story we have of Hillel in the Talmud. Obviously, it comes from humble beginnings. The weirdest thing is we don't hear... In, in a chronological sense, we don't know anything about his background until at least 15 to 20 years later. So it's almost like this poor, you know, ragamuffin guy gets into Harvard, excels, and then we don't hear about him until 20 years later when he becomes the president of Harvard, almost. Because the next story we really know about him is he is working as a uh, nasi and, 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 and uh, basically the head of the Jewish 
community in the land. Uh, John? Yes. A couple of points. What's interesting is they mentioned that for this man, mm -hmm. that it would be okay to violate the Sabbath, almost as if that man is Lord of the Sabbath. And if you think mm -hmm. of him as sort of a precursor for Yeshua, Yeshua is certainly much greater than Hillel. That's yeah. very interesting looking at it that way. And the other yeah. thing is, too, um, going back to the um, stories with Yeshua, mm -hmm. the story where Yeshua was giving a drosh, and there was a man that was ill, he was in a gurney, yeah. and he was on top, and they yeah, yeah. opened the roof to lower him to come to Yeshua. But in this story, it was the opposite, where the leaders went to Hillel, which is so interesting. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> the thing is, and just like Yeshua essentially anointed that man by healing him, yeah. they did the reverse with Hillel. That is true. So you can really see that continuity from Hillel to Yeshua. Yeah. There was the anointing there. There was something very special there. That's a good parallel. And the Chesed Barachimim concept with Hillel that he had, and that's the yeah. basic essence from yeah. Yeshua about loving Hashem, very loving true. your neighbor. Yeah, very true. Go ahead. The whole story, actually, that you just told... Mm -hmm actually arises from a discussion of uh -huh. excuses that people are giving for why they don't study Torah. <laughs> and it's a very practical discussion because yeah. the one that it's talking about is, well, why did you not study Torah? Well, I was preoccupied with my sustenance. In other words, I had to go to work. Yeah. Um, and I find that very, yes. uh, at least, relevant to my life because yeah. I have wake up early and Definitely. go to work. I don't have time to have devotions or Bible study in the morning. Yeah. But every time I hear I remember this story, I'm like, you know, you actually you do. I have to sacrifice something. Yeah. But how much of a sacrifice does it really worth? And so I think that this is such a cool thing because we can think of, oh, well, that's Hillel. Right. He's, he's, I mean, he's Hillel. I, you, I can't do what he did. He's a saint. But at this point, he's not that great guy. He's exactly. just some guy. So it's a, it's pretty cool to think about like well he's just like us exactly he's just an ordinary guy yeah so that kind of gives me hope well if he can do that yeah and then surely I can wake up thirty minutes earlier right and just engage in Torah it, it is it is awesome one one theory about his line of work uh, perhaps a fisherman which would be very interesting hmm. so I have an uneducated fisherman who one day isn't able to to, to catch anything thus not able to go to market to 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 to, to sell anything now that would be an awesome parallel between the life and times of Yeshua and his Talmudim as well. I, but to your point, it is, it is so encouraging that all it took for Hillel to become the leader, to Hillel the, the Zakan, the, the, the elder, is just dedicating a portion of his time each day and, and resources, obviously, for Torah study. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, if, if it's not consistent, then it, 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 will, it will never happen, basically. And that's one, one big point. Hillel always has, is that if you don't set, set aside time from the beginning, then you might as well just not study, because, you know, a, 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 an hour here, whenever I have time, is, is, isn't going to cut it when it comes to en, en, engrossing yourselves in the words yeah. of Torah, which is true. And, uh, go ahead. Uh, going back on what you said about the Master in, in Matthew 12, 11, talking about the sheep, actually mm -hmm. in, in Yoma 82, 83, it talks about where the sages said, for there is nothing that stands in the way of saving life other than a carnival sin of idol worship, illicit relations, or murder. So basically, you know, they're, they're saying, yes, mm. we can violate the Sabbath to, to save life. Right. And uh, it was, uh, yeah. I thought that was really... Right. Uh, hot, hot topic at the time, yeah. So, so here's something else when you talk about the 
character of, of Hillel. This is another great story um, which demonstrates how much I have uh, to accomplish when it comes to holding one's anger back, being patient in different uh, um, s- scenarios and circumstances. And that's where Hillel really shined. So here's, here's an example. Um, this is also coming from the uh, Talmud. This is Tractate Shabbos. Um, this is Daf 30b. And there's this interesting little, little story. The sages are, are in the middle of giving examples uh, of, of proper ways to conduct yourself in a stressful environment. So to check this out. The rabbis once taught in a baraita, that is a teaching, one should always strive to be humble and gentle in all his ways like Hillel. And one should not be stern and un- unyielding like Shammai. And this is the story which, which they illustrate. It once happened that two people made a bet between each other. And they said, whoever goes and provokes Hillel to lose his temper, let him take 400 zuz as his price. 400 zuz is a lot of money at this time. Uh, so they're, they're basically making a bet on, uh, if, if, if you can make Hillel angry, then I will give you an extraordinarily amount of money. And this one guy just says something about his character. He says, okay, I will do it. Thereupon, one of them said, I will provoke him. And, and this, this, so this is what the Talmud recounts. This particular day, it just so happened that it was Friday, the eve of Shabbat. Again, what is the most stressful time in a Jewish home? The eve of Shabbat. And Hillel was busy washing his head, that is, he was basically shampooing his hair. Um, And as he was doing so, this person went and passed by the doorway of his house, calling out in a loud voice, Me Kane Hillel? Mean Kane Hillel? In other words, is there a Hillel here? Kind of like, is is there a a, a Hillel in this general area? And imagine that's basically like going to Washington, D.C. at this time. And passing by the White House, is there an Obama here? I thought, I heard something about an Obama is, is, am I in the right spot? That's basically kind of the, uh, the gravitas, the, 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 the chutzpah this guy is demonstrating. He goes up to the door and knocks, and again, as soon as it's answered, he says, is, is, is there a Hillel here? So Hillel is, is, um, is informed by, by his butler that this guy at the door. So he puts on a, puts on a robe and he greets him. Uh, and he went out to the person, Amarlo, and he said to him, Bani ma'ata mevakesh, my son, what do you seek? And the person said to him, I have a question to ask of you. And Hillel said to him, ask my son, ask. And the person then posed his, his query. Why is it that the heads of Babylonians are so round? So it's, it's the eve of Shabbos, the most you know, busy time. You just went to one of the most important figures in Judaism to ask him a ridiculous question. Why are the heads of Babylonians round? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he took him out of the shower for this. He's, he's wrapped in a robe trying to get ready you know, to light the candles, basically. So Hillel says, Ah, you have asked a great question, my son, a truly profound question. The reason is because, and tr- don't, don't get lost in the answer, there's a lot of depth here. Uh, I won't, I mean, we may have time to cover it, we may not. But he says, because they do not have skillful midwives. And the person then went away and waited a while. So in other words, the heads are, are all misformed because... Midwives in, in Babylonia are not well trained, and that's what happens to m- most most of the babies. So, so this guy says, "Ah, thank you. You answered my question." So, so he leaves and waited a while, and then he returned to the front of Hillel's house and called out again, "Hillel, me Cain, is 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 there Hillel here? Is is there Hillel here?" And Hillel again put on his cloak and went out to greet this person, and he said to him again, "Bani ma'ata mevakesh, my son, what is it that you seek?" And the person replied to him, "I have a question to ask of you." And Hillel said to him, ah, ask my son, ask. 
The person then asked, why is it that the eyes of, of Asians are especially round? Again, don't, don't, don't get lost in the answer. Hillel replied to him, Ah, you have asked a profound question, my son. The reason is because they live in sandy terrain. And if their eyes are smaller and more squinty, you know, uh, sand and what's brought up by the wind won't, won't irritate them and won't get caught in their eyes as much. And, you know, weird, weird question. The point is, actually, these questions may or may not have happened. And there's actually some really cool deeper, deeper explanations behind these questions, which is, has some good spiritual truths. So I won't get into those. But this guy is purposely just asking crazy questions at, at, at a you know inopportune time to one of the most amazing teachers in Israel and, and, and treating him like, like like his time is is of no value. So this guy says, "Ah, oh, thank you." He leaves, goes outside the house, and waits a while, and then he comes back again. And the person uh, came back and returned to Hillel's door and called out, "Is there a Hillel here? Is is this the Hillel's house I just came to?" And again, Hillel put on his cloak and went out to greet him, and and he and said to him, "Ah, my son." Uh, what is it that you seek? And the person said, I have a question to ask of you. And Hillel said to him, Ask, my son, ask. The person then asked, Why is it that the feet of Africans are so wide? And Hillel replied to him, Ah, my son, you have asked a profound question. The reason is because they live in swamplands. The logic, the wider the foot, the more surface area, the, the less probability you have of just sinking. Um, and finally... <laughs> So uh, this guy's failed to exasperate Hillel with his earlier questions. So, the, so this guy made one last attempt to do so. And he said to him, um, I have a great many of questions to ask you, oh, uh, talking to Hillel, and I am fearful that you may become angry with me. And Hillel wrapped himself in his cloak. He sat down in front of him, and he said, Every question you have to ask, feel free to ask. The person then went and said to him, So are you the great Hillel whom they call the Nasi of the Jewish people? And Hillel replied, Yes, I am. The person then said to him, If it is indeed you, then let there not be many like you among the Jewish people. Hillel replied, My son, why do you say such a thing? And this is what he, and this is what he responded, Because on your account I have lost 400 zoos today. And he revealed to Hillel the wager that he had made. <laughs> and Hillel responded to him, One should always vigilantly guard his disposition so that he maintains... Um, his peace with all situations. And Hillel is worth your losing on his account 400 zoos and yet another 400 zoos. But Hillel will not take offense. So, this is, so again, a lot of good character study that, that you could get from Hillel's life. Uh, and this is, of course, coming from Tractate Shabbos and how apropos because it's describing the, the tension but the patience that Hillel was able to overcome this uh, you know, seemingly bozo who was just in for this whole fiasco just, just to make some money. Um, so, again, a patient man, one who, was, who would assume that this guy really didn't know who Hillel was, who really didn't know important questions and the decorum of Shabbat preparation and the, and the day of preparation, he would assume that, uh, that this guy had good intentions and he was always willing to be patient uh, and treat those people with peace and with, re and with respect. And I think you have, as well, other, uh, other quotes from different sages who would say, who is a wise person? One who can learn from every man. Or at least, in Hillel's case, one who can be patient and peaceful and not lose his disposition with every man. That is, that, that is again, one founding uh, and one unique trait that Hillel the Elder has and that is very d descriptive of him. I, f I found that pretty neat. Um... So next we have, and, and I know that a lot of people have heard of 
Hillel's encounter with a particular convert. And that's, that's one of the biggest di uh, di differentiations between him and general Judaism, even today in the 21st century, is how you treat outsiders, you know, people who are not um, Jews, who are not practicing Ju Judaism in a halakhic manner. Um, and Hillel's method was, uh, in many ways, kind of groundbreaking. It's actually coming from the same, same daf, if I remember correctly. Um, double check. Yep, here it is. So yeah, it's actually just the next part of the Gemara. Let's double check them on the right, right way. Yeah, here we go. So, so yeah, like I said, mo most everyone knows of one particular encounter with, with the Gentile. There's actually three. All of them are in progression in, in the same piece of the Gemara. I'm about to read, uh, to, to read those, so go ahead. Could you explain what a Gemara is? Gamara, um, here I'll... Candy. Is it candy? I didn't know that. <laughs> Pete, Pete says it's a candy, but here is... Here is a page of, of the Talmud here on the Aramaic side. Everything right in this little box is part of the uh, Gamara, which is the discussions, the extrapolations that later sages are having about um, the, 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 the sages that came before their time and which uh, all, all of those uh, predecessors would be discussing topics in the Mishnah, uh, which, which is what the Gemara is basically uh, a, a further uh, Bible study, if you will, on, on the Mishnah topics. Can I, I add a couple of things? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, and what's interesting too is there's one Mishnah that was used universally, both in the Jerusalem school, or like also yeah. called Palestinian school, and in the Babylonian school, and it's broken into six parts, and there's 63 tractates. And as you mentioned, Jonathan, the Gemara is the commentary on the Mishnah. The Mishnah was first codified yeah. by Yohud Nasi in 200 CE, roughly. Yeah. And the Gemara was later. But there are two different Gemoras, though. There's a Babylonian Gemara and yes. a Jerusalem Gemora. And the Babylonian Gemora is later, but it's it's there's much more to it. Yes. The Jerusalem is very limited. I think the That's Babylon, true. I think the Jerusalem might be like half. Yeah. The number of yeah. sections. It is. It's very true. Anything you want to add to that? It's good. Me or yeah, you. Um, no, that that was good, um, and that was a proper summary as well. So cool. Yeah, All right. In that case, well, Baraita, yes, yes. Those are things that were outside mm -hmm. the Mishnah. Right. You know, the interesting conversations, just like the the toast posts were interesting as right. well. That were additional. Yeah, the, if I use any terms, or if there's, if there's any uh, words that aren't translated that, that I read, please please let me know. Oh, but yeah. Previously, we talked about three emote of snow oh, yeah. falling on Hillel. That technically an emote is a hand breadth, so they decide what it is. Yeah. It's like 18 inches. Yeah. This, or hand breadth? Hand breadth. Yeah, like oh, here it is. Six inches. Six inches. Well, no, it's bigger than that, right? It's close, though. It's about here. Yeah, Peter, Peter's <laughs> hand breadth. Three of those. If it was Shaquille O'Neal's hand breadth, it would have been. <laughs> uh, That's still a lot of stuff. All right, so, so the, the rabbis taught in a uh, baraisa, a, a teaching that outside of the times of, of the Mishnah, um, or that wasn't written down in the Mishnah. It once happened that a Gentile came before Shammai and said to him, how many Torahs do you Jews have? And Shammai replied to him, ah, we have two. We have the written Torah and the oral Torah. And then, then the Gentile said to him, Hmm, as for the Torah that is written, I believe you, that it was given by God. 
But concerning the Torah that is oral, I do not believe you. Convert me to Judaism on condition that you will teach me only the written Torah. That is, that, I, that he should only be bound by its tenets. Upon hearing this, Shammai berated him for his insolence and sent him away disapprovingly. Afterwards, however, the Gentile came before Hillel with the same request. And Hillel converted him. But one day, Hillel taught the alphabet, the alphabet, to this new convert, saying to him, here is a letter Aleph, this is the sound it makes, with, with you know, giving these vowels. This is, this is the letter Beit, this is the sound it makes. Here's Gimel, this is what it makes. Here's Dalet, etc. Et, et all the way down the alphabet. The first lesson of his conversion class was to learn the alphabet. The next day, the very next day, Hillel reversed the names of the letters for him, teaching him that the letter he had previously called an Aleph the day before was in reality a Tav, and so on. And his student, naturally, as I would as well, got, got a little frustrated. Taken aback by the change, the convert said to Hillel, But yesterday you did not recite it to me this way. And Hillel replied to him, Ah, so you see then, are you not relying upon me to recognize just the letters of the alphabet? Rely on me also then about the validity of the oral law. Interesting interesting point he makes wow. and I know that there's lots of discussion if you have, if you have comments on that please but by all means but I know that even for us that is uh, that rings true today how do we even know what our scriptures are saying if not for an oral tradition that was passed down go ahead that, that sure reminds me of a um, while back I uh, when I taught a lesson mm-hmm. I put on there Genesis 1-1 in the Hebrew without yeah. the vowels so just in the Hebrew and I said, somebody read the sentence to me. And he said, and I think it was Johnny May, said, Bereshit bara lahim, yeah. And I said, that's not, that's not what it says. It just says, the, the, uh, you pronounced it with the vowels. Yeah. But the only reason that we know that this text from Moses is pronounced Bereshit, right. is because the vowel points were added yeah. in, the, um, in the Middle Ages of, our, of the CE, current era. Yeah. So that's a long period of time for that to pass orally and finally be written down in the Middle Ages by the Masoretes. Indeed. So, and how much light, smaller of a time is it for the uh, oral Torah to go from its oral stages to being written down in the Talmud? Definitely. So it doesn't. It's not a far yeah. stretch to see that we can believe that. Okay, Joshua. And then alongside those lines um, is the fact that some of the words in the Jewish scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures are so um, ancient that we yeah. don't always have like a very good translation for them. Yeah. And um, even the sages would debate as to exactly what the word or the phrase would mean. Right. Like, well, I think it means this. I think it's. I think this is allegorical. I think this is literal. I think that this is. You're mispronouncing this word. It should be pronounced this way. Um, right. And it changes the meaning depending on which what vowels you put in and whatever yeah. else. So um, we are very dependent very much on so. other people's. Um, godly men's yeah. interpretations that have been put into for sure the Torah and, and don't you love Hillel's style here I mean he, he, I mean the, the again the chutzpah of this Gentile to go and assert his 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 demand his terms of conversion with one of the the biggest leader of Ju- Judaism at the time him and and his opponents essentially says a lot about the character of of the Gentile and. Just, Shammai, in many ways, was probably... I, I can't justify his actions, but it's, it, naturally one could see why he would uh, get upset with someone who, who, who would try to negotiate terms of a conversion. 
and especially on something as as important as only teach me what is written. Don't I? You know, everything else is is who he is completely. You know, hogwash. Even if we use that language, and then <laughs> Hillel does the exact opposite. Go ahead. Uh, I just want to read uh, an interesting story in sure. Hebrew and English. And what's interesting is this is a book called Modern Hebrew. It's not that modern anymore. It was from 1946. Mm. Let Colby an older copy of this one, or gave him actually. So I just want to read it. And it's a very similar story. In the Talmud, they have a lot of stories that are similar, and they change the names of the people that are involved. And this one is called Shmuel Bahaparsi, Samuel and the Persian. So it says, Shmuel Ishchakam, uh, Samuel was a wise man. He dwelt in the land of Israel. A Persian went to the house of Shmuel. Shalom Omer HaParsi. Peace or, or greetings, said the, the Persian. Shalom Omer Shmuel. Uh, peace, said Shmuel. Ma Tavotzen, what do you want? Omer HaParsi. Ani Lilamod Ivri. I want to learn Hebrew. Tov Omer Shmuel. Good, said Shmuel. Ho'it Yoshev Halyad HaShulchan. The man sat near the table. I'm like mm-hmm. almost half done. And it says, Shmuel Poteach Sefer Beomer. Zot Aleph, Zot Beis. So Shmuel um, opened a book and said, this is the Aleph and this is the Beis, just like yeah. your story, or Beit, I should say. Ha-Parsi Omer, Aleph, Beit. Mazot Shoel Shmuel. What is this? Asked Shmuel. Beit, Kore Ha-Parsi. Beit called out the Persian. Lo Omer, Shmuel, Zot Aleph. Shmuel says, no, this is not. Lo, Zot Beit, Omer Ha-Parsi. No, this is a Beit, said the Parsi. Shoel Shmuel Maso asked Shmuel, what's this? Aleph Omer Parsi. Aleph said the Persian. Beit Omer Shmuel. Faith says Shmuel. Lo Aleph Koreha Parsi. No, Aleph called out the Persian. Shmuel Ro'eh Ki Ish Ro'tzeh Latsefo. And then it says, Shmuel saw that the man is making fun of him. Humake et haparsi al haozen. means he smacked the Persian on the ear. <laughs> oh, haozen shali, oh my ear. Haozen shali, my ear. Kore haparsi called out the Persian. Ain lo ozen, omer that's your hand. Ma tomer, what are you saying? Kore haparsi, said the Persian. Kali shodea, every man knows, ki ozen. And then, um, Cain Omer Shmuel, yes, said Shmuel. But call the and every man knows, Kizot Aleph, Kizot Beis. This is Aleph, this is Beis. So it's very interesting. It's a similar story. Yeah, and it isn't, it isn't the, yeah. the, the Jewish method to make a point and to drive it home by giving a hands-on representation of something that that person will always remember. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's true, just like the Greeks would do the same. But again, the big difference is with Hillel, it was Chesed Barachman, kindness and compassion, no smack. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> Verbal jesting, maybe. But, Verbal yeah. jesting. <laughs> Physical note. So anyways, I, I thought that was just a beautiful story that shows his, exactly, his chesed. Um, and again, there is, a, there is a second narrative. And this is the one I believe that most people are very familiar with. There was another incident involving a certain Gentile who came before Shammai and said to him, Convert me to Judaism on condition that you will teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. Upon hearing these words, Shammai pushed the person away with the ruler, uh, which later, is later explained to be like a three-cubit you know, building stick, basically, uh, that he was holding in his hand. 
And he uttered, um, oh, sorry, he, he, he smacked the guy un, uh, and the, with the stick he was holding, and the Gentile came before Hillel and presented himself with the same request, and Hillel converted him right there on the spot. But, uh, however, before the conversion, Hillel said to him, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the entire Torah. All the rest is a commentary on this one point, this one central point. Now go and learn it. There's, there's a little bit of extra English kind of sprinkled there. But, so again, you have Shammai here. This is, this is pretty interesting. There's a little bit of deeper meaning involved in, in, in some of the details. So you have this one convert who was essentially trying to see if you could boil down all of Jewish philosophy, all of, all of a Torah worldview perspective into one verse while I stand on one foot. But he was doing it again in kind of a mocking, uh, a little bit of a... It was, it was a little too assertive, especially with the crowd that, that he was working with. Shammai knew that. He knew that this guy didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, wanted basically a Torah light version. Wanted something that was so kind of... Watered down, he just wanted, he wanted the cliff notes. And thus, he smacks him with this three-cubit ruling stick, symbolic of something. That a foundation, just, just like a building has a foundation, it is, it is wide and it is strong, and it's built on, uh, on one, one stone and built upon another stone. There's no such thing as a foundation that's one, that's one particular element. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of things. And that's kind of some deeper symbolism with why he smacked him with that particular you know, cubit building ruler. Because so, he knew this guy just doesn't understand the foundation of the Torah. So here, now see if that works any better. But Hillel, and there's some other, some, some, some other deeper meanings with why Hillel answered the way he did, because he's obviously quoting from the, the Torah, but giving a, as opposed to a positive kind of commandment that, that the Torah gives us, that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He gives you, like, the negative version. That which is, which is hateful to your neighbor, do not do. Um, and it's kind of interesting, though. Why would Hillel say focus? I mean, if, if you could, if, uh, and I know for us in 21st century worlds, it, it's easy for us to get asked all the time, give me the gospel in 30 seconds, that's all I have. Or, uh, or practice giving your testimony like an elevator pitch. For, for us, that's kind of natural. Um, but, uh, so I, imagine Hillel with this, this one opportunity and, and the same kind of the elevator pitch of ancient Judaism at this time. Um, and and he, he gives that answer, what is hateful to your neighbor, do not do to them, basically. Or what, 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 what you would hate have done, done to you, don't, don't do to your neighbor. Um, where, where's the God element in there? He, he mentions you know, the relationship between uh, man and man, but where's the relationship between God and God? And there's a lot of different kind of theories here. Of course, he did say that that's, that's the main point, go and learn the rest, and the rest is important. But go ahead. What's very interesting is he stressed the ethical principle and the story is similar, but not exactly the same as the story where Yeshua is confronted by that very wealthy man. Where this fellow wanted to go from uh, yeah. being a Gentile to Jewish, this man wanted to go from being Jewish to being saved, to entering the <laughs> kingdom. And Yeshua basically answered in the same way as Hillel, by going through the ethical part of the Decalogue. Yeah. But, but of course, when the man said, well, I've done all these things... And then when Yeshua said, well, follow me, and it'll even be greater, mm -hmm. then he turned away. Yeah, definitely. But, but what's interesting is, for both of them, they stressed the ethical principles. And I think the reason why they did was, it was assumed to believe in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, Yeah. And understanding the nature of the Kaddish Baruch Hu as well. Sure, as well. And perhaps that's one of it, is 
if, if God, well, it's funny to think of him as your neighbor, right, as, as, as someone you're equal with, but imagine if, 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 if you're not going to offend just a regular person, how much more so, you know, the creator of the, the Rebono Shalom, to your point. Go ahead, Joshua. Well, that's, the, that's first John. If you do not love right. your neighbor whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? Yeah. Um, so it's sticking to the principle of what you do, which is one reason why I think that, um, I mean, think about Hillel. It's so cool to say the stories. Yeah. I think about like the, the one of the biggest criticisms of believers today is being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I think, is because, unfortunately, too many believers fail to have learned the lesson of Hillel and loving their neighbor um, to that degree. So they all they can they hear is this language of godliness. They hear um, grandiose discussions of a being that they can't see, but yep. then they're not treated. They who they can see are not being treated um, with the same level of respect or, or care, and um, and I think that resonates with people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's amazing when you see people who are like genuinely gracious and kind. They just have that as an allure to that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. So here's, here's the last and the third narrative with a, a different uh, Gentile convert. So there was another incident involving a certain Gentile who was once walking past the rear of a study hall. And he heard the voice of a teacher reciting the following verse to the class of children. These are the vestments that they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, etc., etc., and obviously referring about the vestments of, of the high priest, uh, Exodus 38, just, just not, not too long ago. The Gentiles stopped, and he said to the class, These lavish garments, who are they for? And the students replied to him, Well, of course, they're for the Kohen Haggadol. And upon hearing this, the Gentiles said to himself, Whoa, those are some nice garments. Tell you what, I will convert to Judaism so that they will appoint me as the Kohen Haggadol. Because that sounds like a very prestigious place. This guy was a go-getter, very real man. <laughs> so the Gentile came before Shammai and said to him, Convert me on the condition that you shall appoint me as Kohen Haggadol. And Shammai, viewing the request as preposterous, and indeed a valid observation, pushed the person aside with the ruler stick, again, that he was holding in his hand. Um, and All right, there it is again. Again. This guy didn't understand the basic foundation of Judaism. He, he, he's trying to negotiate the terms of his own joining in, his own grafting in, in, into the nation. That's just ruining the foundation of Judaism. So that's thus, you know, a.k.a. vis-a-vis, the ruler stick. So, undeterred, the Gentile came before Hillel and presented him with the same request. And Hillel converted him. And this is beautiful. This is, this is my favorite out of all three. Before performing the conversion, Hillel said to the person, Ah, can we appoint anyone as king unless he is familiar with, say, the ceremonies of royalty? The guy said, oh, no, we can't. So Hillel said, go and learn about the ceremonies of, of royalty, or in this case, learn about the commandments of the kahuna, that is, the priesthood, and then we, well, then we shall see about your request. So the Gentile went, and he learned scripture. And when he had reached the verse that states, and the stranger who approaches shall die which just happens to be in the middle of Numbers. So this guy was pouring over the scriptures from Bereshit all the way to the middle of Numbers before he gets to this verse. And he stops, and he's apparently a very observant, um, you know, pre-convert. Because he, so he gets to the voice, and, and, and the stranger who approaches shall die. And he said to Hillel, Migraze mi namar, this verse, about whom is it stated? And Hillel replied to him, 
it was even stated about David Melech Yisrael, about David, king of Israel. Contemplating this, the convert formulated a Kal Vechomer argument, a how much more so argument. And he said, hold on, hold on. If regular Israelites, including the king of Israel, who are called children of the Almighty, and out of the love that God feels towards them, he called them, my firstborn son, O Israel, yet despite all this, it is written concerning them, and the stranger who approaches shall die, then Kadechomer, then how much more a mere convert who comes into the Jewish people with just his staff and his traveling bag as I have. All the more so, he is to, he is to be considered a stranger with respect to, to the kahuna. And after coming to this conclusion, the convert came before Shammai and said to him, Could I possibly have been fit into the Kohen Hagadol's position? Is it not written in the Torah, and the stranger who approaches shall die? And then, he became, and then he came before Hillel and said to him, Hillel, the humble one, let blessing come to rest upon your head, for through your gentle and unassuming guidance you brought me under the wings of the divine presence. Beautiful story that Shammai wasn't willing to give this guy the light of day. Hillel's method allowed this, this, this young man to have a relationship and to fall in love with the scriptures and with the God of Israel. And in the process, the, the, this man taught himself, became his own realization through his love and through his, uh, his, his effort pouring in the scriptures, that he was unfit for this position. And it didn't deter him away. After coming to that realization, it encouraged him even so much more. He went, he went to Shammai. He said, you knew this from the, from the very beginning. Now I know it. So yeah, thanks. But then he went to Hillel and said, blessed are you because your methods have given me you know, shelter under, under, the, under the wings of the divine. Go ahead. The realization that a Gentile comes to, you know, in that only particular people that God selected to be the Kohen Agadol can wear the vestments. Yeah. It's kind of like how much more me being a Gentile and coming in yeah. reminds me of Shaul's discussion in Romans chapter 11 about the olive tree. Where he said, yeah. well, God didn't spare the natural branches. Don't boast against the natural branches because yeah. he won't spare you. How much more so will he yeah. take rip you guys off? Exactly. Go ahead, bro. One thing uh, I thought was cool that Halil did that uh, every time a, a Gentile came to Shammai, he didn't even you know, give them, you know, talk to them or, right. you know, discuss Torah with them. He just sent them away. But all Hillel did is he sent them to learn the Torah. Mm-hmm. And every time, he never had to say anything. Yeah. All they had, had to do was learn the Torah, and they came to their own yeah. realization. He never actually had to teach. He yeah. said, go learn the Torah. And it's beautiful, because that's where he was, you know, maybe 25, 30 years before, being the poor day worker who all he wanted to do was just break down that barrier so he could just learn Torah. So he, so this is, it's really... Um, says a lot about where he came from based on how he, how he treats other people. So Richard, did you have a comment now? Yeah, it was interesting that in both of those stories you mentioned that uh, Shammai pushed them away for yeah. not understanding the foundation mm-hmm. of what well, you simply, you can't simply come into Judaism on your own terms. Would you also say that Hillel had that same mindset toward the, the converts but went about it in a different way? Very much so, yeah. I mean, his, his whole method is that, obviously, Hillel knows, kn- knows the answer, he, he knows the, the barriers to entry, and he knows it's not going to happen. But he also knows that there's a bevy of wisdom, a, 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 an entire lifestyle change, that really is, is, is the point of, 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 of the Torah. And both of these converts, perhaps, their motives were just mixed up. And, all, all, you know, and we can't change someone's motives, but we can change their actions. We can, we can influence their actions and their behavior, and that's all that Hillel had to do. And, and then, if, and if it really is of God, 
then the motives will change in and of themselves. Go ahead, Joshua. Actually, I had to yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That being the case, I think it's interesting that uh, Hallel, having so much in common with Yeshua, uh, with yeah. the one, especially with the one comment uh, that he said, do not do unto others what is, or essentially, don't do unto others what is hateful to you. It's just the converse of the golden rule. Right. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. It, it's so fascinating that, yeah. think about well, which one is more restricting <clears throat> and yeah. more allowing. Anyway. Um, so that being the case, I think that that's a lesson for us to learn is that, well, if we tr do think of ourselves as having been grafted into Judaism, mm -hmm. and both of these great men say, well, you can't just make up your own rules for doing right. that, do we do that? That I is think that's a, really interesting that's a lecture and a discussion. Yeah. I would love, I, I know I've had it with a lot of people, but it's worth having as a community in the yeah. future. Anyway, it's just a question. For sure. That's a good question. Go ahead, Joshua. Um, just thinking about Hillel's creative approach yeah. in handling people. Um, because Shammai obviously knows the answer, and he just wants to get straight to the answer, and the answer is no. Yeah. Um, what's great about Hillel is that he recognizes that you, you he tries to use no sparingly, mm -hmm. and he tries to find a creative way to hopefully get the person to know. Um, I remember when I was growing up, my, my youngest brother, um, when he was a small child at the time, and I was late teens, early 20s, um, it was very difficult because there'd be times where, like, he would ask for something, one want to do something with you, and my gut reaction would just be no. And then I'd think more about it and realize, well, okay, I could probably, you know, if I rearrange my schedule a little bit, I could spend the 15 minutes you to go play or do whatever, you know. But um, with kids, you can't really say no and then turn around and say, oh, never mind, I changed my mind. Because but that yeah. basically in, inculcates the idea that, well, if you keep asking me, eventually I'll change my mm -hmm. mind. That's true. So the key is, and this is where Hillel was so, was so wise, he started off with the creative answer. Mm. He held no for last. Um, because no is always like, it should be the final answer. You can't have another answer after that. Yeah. Um, and it was so cool the way that he gave, um, let's, let's get you in the door, let's get you learning, and let's let help you find the no, or, or let, let me help you find the pieces you need to, to figure it out yourself. But I'm not going to immediately start off with that because that ends the conversation. Exactly. And it's really neat that the, the end of that uh, piece in the Gemara is these three converts eventually meet up together. Their, their paths cross, and they're, both, they're, and they're all sharing their stories. And they all basically come to the conclusion, blessed is Hillel for his compassion, his mercy. And let us not be like Shammai in his wrath and his anger, who, you know, who basically refused us. Um, so, anyway, so those are the unique teachings and the perspectives methods that Hillel had. Now, that, now I only have about uh, 20 minutes or so, so I'm going to give you a brief introduction to Hillel's philosophy as opposed to Shammai. So why exactly was Hillel so open? We talked about his background, but let's talk about his, the way he would um, look at a, a, a Torah mitzvah and the... The, if you can enter the mind of Hillel and, and of later his students, this is basically what they would be thinking. For example, what does the Torah say when someone steals something? What's, what's the protocol? You make restitution, and what else? You, obviously, but that includes two elements. First one is you do what? Restoring what you stole. Restoring what you stole, and then replacing, replacing something. Good. So Hillel um, and, and Shammai in, in the story, are, and also in, in the Talmud, are basically asking the question, all right, so let's make this really practical. What do you do if someone stole, I don't know, something of not high, uh, not high value, easy to replace, let's call it a wooden beam, is the example they use. So 
So Shmuley steals from Moishi a, a piece of wood. And he goes and he uses this piece of wood to build his house. Later on, he feels regret, he wants to repent, and he wants to make restitution. So he goes to Moishi, the guy who stole the beam from, what should be the proper rep- restitution for the base returning thereof? In other words, should he go tear down, demolish his house to get this beam, and bring it back and give it to Moishi? Or should he just take the monetary value of the beam and give that to Moishi plus, plus the per- percentage handling fee? So, what do you guys think? And then I'll, and I'll divulge. Option C? There is no option C. <laughs> well, I was going to say, go buy two beams. Go buy two beams. Okay, but, but think about it. So the Torah command is, is literally, and he shall restore to that person which he took by robbery. Leviticus 5.23. Mm-hmm. That item which he stole by robbery shall be returned. So he should demolish his entire house. Get the beam and return it back to... Return it, okay. So... Jim that out. So, okay, so that's the case. As opposed to just, you know, saying the estimated value of this when I stole it was 20 shekels, go to the pawn shop, broker the deal, and you're done. So here's an interesting thing. Shammai is, tra- is traditionally and always the, the literalist of Judaism. Shammai's view is that what, by whatever means possible, you go to your house, you break it down, if, if that's what it requires, to get this beam and schlep it back to Moishi's house. But Hillel's point of view was no. The, the intention of this commandment is, is the, the value of, 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 of the beam. And, and it's, there's other discussions. What if it's actual uh, 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 an item that it's not, you're not worried about the um, replacement value, the replacement cost. What about if it's there, there's a sentimental cost involved? You know, what happens if I steal an urn and the urn's not very expensive, but it just happened to be your great-great-grandmother's urn, and you want it back. Do I just hawk it for the five shekels it's worth? Yeah, that, or do we actually give you back the, the sentimental value? It's a really interesting question. But in this, this case, think about Shammai's method, the most literal view possible. How many, how many people would repent and give back this wooden beam if it meant they had to demolish their house? I mean, think about it, like the white beam right behind Peter. Like, that's what we have to give back. We want to repent because it's the right thing to do, we, we keep these you know, mitzvot seriously, and we want to fulfill them to the T, and Shammai's telling us, I have to take that out of my house and bring it back to you. And Hillel's like, no, no, no. If you do that, you've just made the ability or the desire to repent extremely difficult for people. Because it has nothing to do with the beam, it has everything to do with the intention of the mitzvah, which is when a person is ready to repent, we need to make it as, as easy as possible, especially over something so trivial, so common, as a beam. And, and that's, that's, the, that's basically a big difference between Shammai, who's the, the literal. If this is what the Torah says, then by all means, is what it says. And Hillel, who is more always looking at the intent of a mitzvah. Here's another example. There is, um, in the prophets, there's a lot of verses that talk about the, uh, the wedding day, how important it is to make a bride feel beautiful and gladdened. Right? So the, uh, to, to encourage the simcha of the day, the, the joy of the day. Now, it's really funny. Um, there's, there's another question in the Talmud. Of course, they would ask this. How does one dance before the bride, and, and what does one say before a bride on her wedding day? So, Beit Shammai says that the bride should be, and I quote, is described as she is. And Beit Hillel says that every bride should be described as beautiful and graceful. Shammai took issue with this, with this view of saying, okay, even if the bride is maybe not, you know, 
top shelf beautiful maybe she's whatever we have to basically be open you can't you can't have any essence of um, of making things up and he quotes a, a Torah verse uh, which I, I don't think I have the reference with me but um, basically stay far away from falsehood is the literal verse that he's pointing to hanging his hat on and saying no 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 if the bride is big, fat, and ugly, and it's her wedding day, we have to tell her, you know, you're big, fat, and ugly. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. That's the literal Torah mitzvah I have to go to. And Hillel said, no, there's always compassion. And how much more so on the day of a wedding, when your job is to make the bride feel like, like the queen. Like, you know, you treat her with grace, you say that she's beautiful, and that's, that's, that's the intention of, of the commandment. The commandment isn't to blatantly, you know, have no filter and just tell, it, and, and tell everyone uh, how it is. And eventually, in, in that particular piece of, of the Talmud, they kind of conclude, um, and it's actually not between Hillel and Shammai, it's between their later schools, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai. But again, you have even the students of, of uh, Shammai were still kept to that literal perspective. If the Torah says, stay far away from falsehood, I'm not even going to give people compliments if it's, not, if it's not the face value of truth. And Hillel says, okay. There's, yeah, there's the, you can take that far and you can, you can obviously you know, degrade even that commandment. Go ahead, Greg. It's cool, too, because it's, it's almost like a more humble view of the situation because obviously if she's getting married, that means she is beautiful to her husband. Yeah. Because that's a, a com that's a concept in the Talmud as well, is that like a bride and a groom can't get married unless they're attracted to each other. Exactly. And so that's just, it's so cool of Halal to, to think it's not about me. Like right. this commandment is about someone else. Exactly. So I have to put their needs before mine. And if she is clearly beautiful to her husband, then I'm going to say that yeah, as sure. well. And that's just, it's a cool approach. You look beautiful to your husband. <laughs> <laughs> One thing from the from the house of Shammai, they're both married, not to each other, Naturally. and they go home, and each of their wives ask them, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> because Shammai would, yeah. you know. Good point. Well, and to that point, why is Hillel very lenient when it comes to divorce? This is the one issue that he, his views and Yeshua's views don't, don't line in. And why is Shammai very literal to the point? No, it says that if there is, I wish I had it with me, but the, the so verse... The burning of the food, right? The, well, basically, Hillel comes to the point, even if she displeased... Oh, yeah, that's the word. If um, there's suspicion uh, on grounds of adultery, I can't remember the exact verse in the Torah, but that's basically the assumption of, okay, then, then, then it's okay for um, divorce, right? That's, that, that's the clause. Hello is like, okay, well, it's that, but really it's, you know, that can be really translated as even if she's just displeasing to, to her husband, the bride can be given a get. So what does it mean to displease? Well, that's like, you know, it has the, the potential to mean whatever. Even if she burns the toast, you know, if she makes a meal that's not pleasant, she, she, can, get the, she, she can get the boot. So Hillel, obviously, is just, just a man missed that in regards to proper, you know, divorce etiquette, if, if there is such a thing. And Shammai is saying, no, no, no. Literally, it is only if there are grounds for suspicion of sexual immorality or adultery. That's the only way. That's, and that's, again, Shammai's zeroing in with like a laser beam focus on this is as literal as it can get, and that's all that's required. So it's funny. You see, again, the other extreme of Hillel's graciousness um, and when it comes to divorce. I found that very interesting.
So I only have like 20 minutes. Um, and this, this, is, this is kind of the capstone of the differences between like, the philosophical approach between these two people. The beginning of the Talmud. How does uh, tractate Brachos, how does it start with? It asks the question, when are we obligated to recite Shema at nighttime? Um, and there's tons of different views, but all of them agree that there is a biblical requirement to, to recite the Shema at night. And, it's, and where, where are they basing that from? It, anybody. There's a, a particular Rabbi Gamliel. Well, where sorry, where in the Torah? Like when you lie down. When you lie down and when you rise up. right? When you lie down and when you rise up. So when you lie down is the biblical obligation to recite these these words you shall recite when you lie down and when you rise up. So there's three basically um, the first three pages of, of the Talmud are I trying to come up with the answer when is the obligation incumbent upon you? In other words, when does it start? And when is it over? When, when if, you, if you haven't said it by this time, you've missed this opportunity to perform this commandment. And very interesting discussion. So I'm just going to read the one paragraph here, and this is actually the first mission of the entire uh, Talmud. This is what it says. Um, oops. Here it is. From when may we fulfill the obligation to recite the Shema in the evenings? The answer. From the time that the Kohanim who were Tameh, that is unclean, may enter to eat their truma, the, the, their, their sacrifices. That's the answer. So when can we sacrifice more? From the time when a Kohen who, is, who was Tameh can go into the temple, meaning now he's Tahor to eat his truma. There's a bunch of terms that you have to be defined before you can even understand that, but even that isn't defined. So, so what does it mean that a Kohen who was Tameh, who is now Tahor, may go into the temple to eat his truma? Basically, in other words, that nightfall. And that's like typical Mishnaic, Talmudic, not, you know, you, you answer a question either with another question or with an answer that requires seven questions to figure out what the answer really was. <laughs> so basically, uh, if, so this is what happened. If, if a Kohen had become unclean and before he could get into the temple, it had to, two things, he had to have a mikvah and it had to be a certain amount of time had to pass before his un, uncleanliness, uh, depending on what it was. And it had to be at nightfall and he would be deemed clean, assuming he had a mikvah. So, and the truma is um, produce that is grown in the land of Israel has a certain level of holiness and cannot be partaken unless it is a portion of it, tithing, this is where tithing comes from, is given to the, the priesthood uh, as, as their portion because they didn't have land and said they, they had a right to claim produce from the land. So, one can, is obligated to recite the Shema when this can happen at nightfall. And then there's like three pages of discussing, okay, well, when, when can the Kohen go and eat his And basically they say, when three stars are in the sky. And then now for those, I know you're just like turning your Talmudic wheels, you're going to ask, okay, well, what questions can you derive from that? Like, you know, what defines a star? How many stars, the size of a star? What if it's cloudy outside? What do you do? Huh. There's all discussion. We're not going again there. We'll keep it simple. But, um, so when, from the time three stars come out, is all agreed upon is roughly about 6 p.m. and it starts the time when normal people get ready to go to bed. Uv shaf becha, right? When when you lie down. So the, the, so there's a, there's three opinions, and I'll go ahead and write these down on the board so you just get them. The first the first rabbi. Rabbi Eliezer. You have the rest of the sages. Then you have. Exactly. Rabban Gamliel. So they all have three different opinions 
on when you can end, when the obligation to, to sit, to, uh, until when are you obligated to say and recite Shema. So I'll, I'll give you the answer. Basically, Rabbi Eliezer says, so you can start from 6 p.m., but if you go past 10 p.m., you've missed the opportunity to fulfill this Torah mitzvah of reciting Shema. The sages, after this whole discussion, they say, okay, 6 p.m., okay, we'll give you that, but no, we're actually going to say until midnight. Until midnight, you are still have the obligation to recite Shema. And then Rabban Gamliel, he says, oh, okay, 6 p.m. It's funny how they all agree on, on that time, which is when three stars come out. It took them a while to agree with the B says no. Until, and, and he says, right, until the sun rises, until the first rays of the sun come out, which basically can be summarized around 6 a.m. average. But his point is until the next day has started. Just to be safe, just say it to six. So yeah, just, just six. Yeah, in order to be safe. And there's even different, because Rabbi Eliezer is saying 10 p.m. is that's actually the hour of the first watch in the temple courtyards. Because the night was broken into three different watches. He's saying until the, until the first watch, well, what the heck does that mean? Is, in, in today's you know, vernacular, it means 10 p.m. roughly. So, so, he, so here are the three different opinions that are given in this first Mishnah and then in the, and, and talked about later in, in the Gemara. And you'll see again, you have to know this, this is an important element. Rabbi Eliezer is the student from which school? From Beit Hillel or Beit Shammai? Beit Shammai, exactly. The rest of the sages, they're on their own. Rabban Gamliel, he's the grandson of who? Hillel. Of, of Hillel. So obviously he's from the house of Hillel. So why the different views on this one particular mitzvah? It's really interesting. And it all comes down to the trying to answer the question, what does it mean, when you lie down? And here, so here's, here's, basically, here's the arguments. Rabbi Eliezer says that it means well, from the time a normal person goes to lie down, um, during, that, during the interval, which it means to, to go and lie down, the process of starting, a.k.a. sleeping. So his point is that from when the general people of Israel go to lie down, when bedtime starts between these given hours is, is assumed to be the time when most people would go and right, and go and lie down. Rabban Gamliel is saying, okay, it doesn't actually mean like when you go to lie down. It actually means when people generally are lying down. When, when, when in, the, in the period of 24 hours are people lying down? He says, well, it's basically from 6 p.m. until anywhere in the night, until, uh, until, the, until the sun rises, people can, can, can lie down. And it's funny because there's actually a story where Rabban Gamliel's sons come back from a banquet and it's, and it's past midnight and they ask their father, it's like, okay, we did not recite Shema yet, do we still have the obligation? And this is when Rabban Gamliel makes his point. He says, until the sun has risen, you still have the obligation to recite the, the Shema at night. So in other words, uh, Rabbi Eliezer is focused on the, the nation as a whole the, has the potential, this is the key word, the potential to go to bed to start to around 6 to 10 o'clock. That's, that's the time when, when potentially most people go to bed. Ah, but Rabban Gamliel says, no, 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 it's not about potential. It has nothing to do with potential. It has to do with the actual. When is the actual time a person goes to lie down? He's saying it's anywhere between 6 p.m. until 6 a.m., between the normal hours a person goes to sleep and the hours that a crazy person who has a night, night job or whatever, whatever it has, goes and lies down. This is the actual versus the potential. And what do the sages say? The sages actually say, Rabban Gamliel is correct. It says, technically, yeah, they interpret it to mean 
until until the next day, until uvkomecha, until you rise, you have the obligation to say it uh, because of uvashafacha when you lie down. But they say if we postpone until six a.m., what does that do for people? That gives them an excuse to push back the recitation of Shema until it gets too late. All of a sudden, you forget. All of a sudden, it becomes a habit, and then you are now getting too close to violating a Torah mitzvah which is to recite Shema. So they say, okay, we're actually, we agree with Avang Gamliel, but we, that this is the biblical obligation, that you have until 6 a.m., until, uh, sorry, 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. to recite Shema, but we're going to move it back until midnight, lest people become lazy, don't become proactive, and they violate a Torah mitzvah. So the rest of the sages cite with Avang Gamliel from the house of, of, uh, of Shammai. So I have like two minutes. Go ahead, any, any comments on that? So the conclusion is that even though, as you mentioned, that we can paskin, we can do according to the house of Gamliel, that to build a fence around the Torah, we should really do what the Chachamim say. Mm. And not just in this case, but for all things. Yes. So we can go to the very edge of something, it's so easy to fall up. And that's the Indeed. basic reason that the Pharisees do what they do, and the, even the ultra-Orthodox do what they do, that they Indeed. build these extra fences. Right. The problem is... If you build too many fences, then it has a negative effect as well. Right, and, and, and the fence thing is good, but the point here is, Shammai, again, potential. That's the, that, he's a, a, literate, a literalist when it comes to particular verses, but when it came to particular commandments, he would look at the potential of, <laughs> potentially, this is the grand, the grand scheme of Jews, generally speaking, this is what happens. But... Uh, Hillel was like, no, this has nothing to do with potential, it has to do with actual. Here's the last example, this is the capstone. Um, uh, during Hanukkah, you know, we all light the Hanukkah menorah. We start, according to whose tradition, of lighting one candle for the first night, and then two candles for the second night, etc. That is according to Hillel's tradition. But Shammai and Rabbi Eliezer and his descendants would, would do the opposite. I'm sure you guys have heard of this. You start with eight, and you go down to seven, and you go down to six, etc., because they're worried about the potential. On the first night, you have potentially eight nights of Hanukkah, thus eight candles. But no, Rabban Gamliel and Hillel says it has nothing to do with potential, it's the actual. You have actually one night is, is the first night, and that's, uh, that's what we're fulfilling, second night, etc. So you see the difference between the approach when it comes to simple traditions and, 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 uh, and, and how they would interpret different forms. But, but any other comments? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, I watched a little video on the uh, Torah Cafe, and it was talking about the, uh, the Mitzvah of Hanukkah, and uh, the reasoning, one of the reasoning of why we, we don't take away from the light, so we, we always add to it, uh, yeah. you know, from one, uh, and it's because it's, it's, it's light that's to be given, and mm. not to be taken, Right. and so that's, that's one of the reasons that they... Yeah. And is it, right. It's interesting that a lot of modern day customs, halakha, etc., follow, have, have become down the, the, the tutelage of, of Hillel and, and his philosophy of the actual and, and of the more, the intention of a commandment has become a little bit more of, of uh, in my opinion, the, the way it's done to, to, uh, to this day. But the behavior aspect, when, especially when it comes to how we treat Gentiles. And, and potential converts is more of the Shammai aspect, especially for 21st century Jews, um, for various reasons. There's a lot of history involved, but there's there's a lot of theories, there's a lot of expectations of of that changing, and particularly in, in America, where you have 21st century Americans 
are not... When was the last time uh, an, an American went out of their way to persecute a Jew? It just doesn't happen like it did in the other countries and not so far, you know, history. So, so there is a little bit of a, of a professional criticism, even among Judaism at large, of like, well, maybe we should kind of uh, shift a little bit our, our demeanor towards the outside world. Go ahead, Greg. I was just going to... Learning the difference and, and diving more into Hillel is, is really inspiring, you know, because I feel like, to some extent, because, and I don't know fully, but the history of Shammai, I mean, it seems like he was a very learned man, yeah. scholarly, and didn't come from the same humble beginnings as Hillel, mm. and sometimes I feel like that's, that definitely describes me, and maybe others too, that we get sort of raised in religion, you yeah. know, like, all my life, like, we've gone to church and everything, you know, so there was never this time where I've had to humble myself in order to learn God's word, in order yeah. to like be be as submissive as Hillel was at that, that time, which then gave him all of these excellent qualities of humility and compassion and love. Yeah. And it's just it's such a, a good example for those of us that maybe have come from similar backgrounds where we've just kind of known it all our lives and never had yeah. to like really yeah. work for work it for and it. strive yeah. for it. And so it's it's just good to hear his example. Definitely. Definitely. And even then, they both had, uh, all three of these camps, they all agreed that this was a Torah obligation. And it's funny because Rabbi Lazar, to give you another um, precursor of the literalism of Shammai and his, and his followers, they would actually interpret at first, until something bad happened, you would have to be lying down, physically lying down horizontally before you could recite the Shema. Because it said, Why? when you lie down. And there was a funny story where they have a, someone from, from Beit, uh, Shammai is traveling on the road. He lies down in the middle of the road because it's, it's, it's incumbent upon him to say Shema. And he feels physically unsafe because he can't move. There's bandits. He's in the middle of, middle of nowhere. I was like going to like, you know, uptown Charlotte on a busy street and just lying down and hoping nothing bad goes, you know, happens for the next minute and a half while you recite Shema and trying to keep like cupping up. It's funny because I know it's it's, it's funny that the, the literalism of, of Shema. I mean, think about it. How about like this this coming Saturday? We all get here. We all you know we we got the talit on. We're going through the opening bahu, and all of a sudden we get to the Shema and everyone just lays down. And if you have you ever seen that happen, then you know, tell that person that they should finish reading the the the. the the Talmud discussions where that whole idea was first proposed because it was actually shot down and it's basically being too literal. The intention of a commandment is very important. So anyway, so I thought that was really interesting. But that story is interesting where he actually lays down in the road yeah. and recites the Shema and a bunch of robbers come up to him. And then it says in that, in that Mishnah, and it says, and they told him, he was transgressing, I guess, base Hillel. <laughs> you should say, but then you say, wait a minute, before they rob him, they give him a Devar Torah. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. When you read the Gomorrah, it's not the robbers that tell him, it's the Chachamim that tell him. Yeah. But if you don't read the Gomorrah, you would think the robbers do. So it just shows that robbers were very different than the they were today. They were pious in their Hebrews. I what they like for Good. Yeah. I think also um, it reminds me of some of Paul's discussions on the spirit and the letter. Mm. Um, and I know that oftentimes it's used yeah. um, by people to undermine the letter so that the letter is of no effect. Mm. And all we have to do is keep the spirit of the commandment. So the spirit of the commandment of Shabbat is to rest. So as long as I take a nap at some point during the week, that's good enough. 
But in the but but Hillel, I think, does a pretty good job of, for the most part, except maybe perhaps the divorce situation. He manages to capture the spirit within the context of the letter, and and I think that's really what Paul was trying to get at: is that it's it's too easy sometimes to do the literal <coughs> action and miss the point of a commandment. Definitely. Um, and that really is not the ultimate fulfillment of that commandment. You know, like like lying down to say Shema, as opposed to you know trying to pay attention when you say it. Right, or or tearing down your house just to give a beam back to somebody. Right. right. Whereas at the same time, like the that doesn't that doesn't mean like I mean, like I said, obviously talking about Hillel here. Right. He wasn't going through and 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 throwing away the literal. Yeah. He was simply trying to interpret the literal within the context yeah. of what it meant, uh, of what it was trying to say, and I think that that's that's really kind of helpful because I, I think sometimes especially. I'm the type of person who likes to be very technical with things, and it can be very easy to be someone who's um, so focused on the letter that you, it's like almost right. like you think to yourself, well, as long as I do at least this, I'm good, but we're not really keeping the spirit. We're only simply doing like the bare minimum technicality, right. and I think that's what Hillel was trying to fight against, so that we sure. don't just do the bare minimum, but that you really get the heart of God with this commandment. Right, go ahead, Ryan. Well, uh, Joshua's point really seems to me as though Hillel had an early glimpse of the Torah written on the heart, mm. the New Covenant. I mean, not, yeah. of course, in its full fulfillment in Yeshua, of course. Right. But, but when it comes to the relationship with God, yeah. glimpse and having, knowing what Moshe said about yeah. it, and also Jeremiah. Yeah, definitely. Especially in his way that he was encouraging, you know, the converts to to step up the relationship. Yeah. That's true. All right. We thank you, O Adonai God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive a reward. They toil and do not receive reward. I run, rather, we run, and they run, but we run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As is written, O you, O God, you shall lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for us, we will trust in you. Thank you.